Ryan Berkman's welcome back to Real Vision. It's always a pleasure to have you here on the platform. Uh, for those who may not have seen our earlier episode and who are not yet familiar with your work, you're an independent investor uh, and Ethereum community member, something that you're just truly passionate about. Uh, and it really comes through when you talk about Ethereum. Today, we're going to talk about two topics today uh, that are very important in the Ethereum ecosystem, NFTs uh, and Ethereum changes coming to the network, ETH 2.0, scaling solutions, uh, hard forks, all that and more. Very excited to have you back with us today, Ryan. Thanks, Ash. Great to be back. So let's just jump in uh, and talk about NFTs. I think that um, there are a lot of misconceptions about what NFTs are and what they aren't. Uh, I think many people from the traditional finance side uh, think of uh, NFTs as kind of uh, digital cabbage patch kids when they have a great deal more uses. How do you think about NFTs big picture? Right, Ash. So NFTs leaped into the limelight earlier this year uh, with the rise of predominantly crypto art collectibles. And these are the cabbage patch kids. These are folks paying, you know, folks who perhaps have had some financial success on the upswing in crypto and they want to enjoy that. They want to feel community and they're outlaying sometimes tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars for these so-called JPEGs or Cabbage Patch Kids. Sometimes uh, over t over 10 million. I think the record is over $10 million uh, for uh, some of the uh, some crypt, uh, crypto punks and uh, board ape. And these are huge numbers that we're seeing out there. Just absolutely huge numbers. Uh, if I recall correctly, the top uh, sale ever for one unit was uh, Beeple, the famous artist, sold a single NFT for $69 million. I believe it was a collage of all of his daily art that he's been doing for something like yeah. 5,000 days. So great work by him. And recently, in the past week or two, uh, we've seen a single NFT collection created by a community member uh, raise over uh, $70 million, uh, just one collection, and even more amazingly, did so in a matter of uh, minutes, uh, just absolutely oversubscribed in terms of the launch of that collection. So NFTs have certainly light, leaped into the limelight as a fundraising vehicle or a, a uh, a, a collective action collectibles vehicle. Uh, they've leaped into the limelight as a, a way to uh, express yourself in the crypto community uh, involving, you know, crypto art and collectibles. But there's really something deeper going on here. At their heart, NFTs are a technology standard, kind of like security certificates for your web browser, where what is an NFT? Well, uh, first of all, when we say NFTs, we, we might mean the NFT standard as a technology standard, or we may mean the specific individual piece of property that's in my crypto wallet or could be in your crypto wallet. And so NFTs are a distinct piece of personal digital property, kind of like, you know, a scarf knit for you by your grandmother. It is a distinct piece of property that uh, is unique, uh, not the same thing as a can of Coca-Cola, where if you and I right. both have unopened Coke cans, we can swap cans and we have the same can. Just the same thing with crypto tokens like Ether, like Bitcoin. If you and I have one Ether, we effectively have the same Ether. Those are fungible tokens. With the NFTs, right. that's the non-fungible token. 
each of us has has distinct personal digital property, and we're just seeing a, a range of interesting use cases uh, for for the NFT vehicle. You know, it's so interesting. I, I tend to think of it as a kind of a digital fingerprint that uses the underlying cryptography uh, that powers uh, these tokens uh, to create digital uh, uniqueness in this space. It's interesting because everyone who comes to uh, the crypto space comes from a different position for people who haven't already guessed. Uh, you're someone who's formerly studied computer science. Um, for people who come from the financial space, we're used to the idea uh, of fungibility. If you think about something like a, a barrel of oil, one barrel of oil is uh, equal to uh, another barrel of oil, assuming that the parameters are the same, WTI or Brent, for example, uh, and North Sea crude, these ideas of, of fungibility. And that's what we have with Bitcoin with the Ethereum tokens, but NFTs are different in that everyone, as you say, is unique, like the scarf your grandmother knitted for you. And it's provably unique uh, using uh, the ERC-721 standard, which is what you're referring to when you were talking about the, the overarching standards behind this. Give us a little bit of a thumbnail sketch for people who don't have computer science backgrounds uh, about what ERC-721 is and why it's so important to understanding the way NFTs function. For sure. So what ERC-721 is, is it's a bit like a shipping container for the idea of personal digital property. If we look at shipping containers, this is a standard technology that not only made it very convenient to put your stuff inside the standard shipping container, where if I have some stuff, I'd like to ship my stuff, I'm able to just say, send me a shipping container, and I don't care which one it is. Uh, and at the same time, the shipping container, uh, as a as a you know having a standard dimensions, you know probably standard materials, not my area. They can build that to spec around the world's ports. So if you're in a port in in Venice uh, or one in South America, they can just expect the same standard shipping containers, and that's what we're seeing in the NFT space, where ERC seven twenty one means that. When you and I, as builders and creators, when we launch our own NFT collection or we use the NFT standard for something more financial related or exotic, and we'll get into some examples later, we can be assured that the NFT we create will in fact be interoperable with the hundreds of different infrastructure plays currently ongoing in the Ethereum and crypto ecosystems. So right. by far right now, the most famous infrastructure platform is going to be your OpenSea.io. So OpenSea is a place where you go to buy, sell, and list NFTs. It's been billed as sort of an Amazon.com for NFTs. And it's important to understand that OpenSea, as successful and great as it's been, and, and will continue to be, in, in my opinion, it, it's a layer on top of the digital property rights that are created and secured on the blockchain and by the blockchain. Yeah, this is a, such a such an important point here. First of all, I just love this metaphor uh, of containerization of containers being uh, this uh, metaphor for the way that you see NFTs. Containerization for people on the uh, nerdy econ side is one of the quietest economic revolutions we've had uh, in the world in the last 50 years. And the idea that you can create a standard uh, for the container aspect of it. And then what's internal, uh, what's inside the container, the bicycles or the, you know, brie cheese or whatever that's being shipped in it uh, is unique and specific. It's such a fascinating one. You just transitioned to talking about uh, OpenSea 
which is uh, what I guess you could say maybe to continue the metaphor, uh, it's the busiest port uh, in the NFT space. It's the marketplace uh, where people are buying and selling and exchanging these tokens. Tell us a little bit about that for people who aren't familiar, who may not have been to OpenSea yet. Give us a little bit of a sense of what that means and why it's significant. Right, Ash. OpenSea has a great analogy in Amazon in that on Amazon, we have merchants, which will be called creators on OpenSea. And we have shoppers on Amazon, which will be called collectors, NFT collectors on OpenSea. And they need a place where they can browse available collections, view emerging trends, filter for NFTs of interest. They want to view their own NFTs in their own crypto wallet. Without software like OpenSea, all of that data is resident on the blockchain. And because the Ethereum blockchain is a single global computer, the cost of memory and computational resources, you know, the, the Amazon cloud bill for Ethereum is quite high and it makes it a poor fit for many of the follow-on complementary services that really maximize the impact of NFTs as a, as a vehicle and as a cultural phenomenon. So to put that in plainer English, if you want to bid on NFTs, if you want to list NFTs for sale, you want to search for different trends, you want to follow your friends' collections, all of those capabilities rightly live in different software stacks outside of the Ethereum blockchain. And the fact that you own your own NFT data is the most fundamental base layer of the whole NFT trend. It's your personal digital property. And today you can interact with your personal digital property by connecting your crypto wallet to OpenSea. But OpenSea has many competitors as well as it, it might be said that OpenSea fundamentally has a, uh, a different sort of a moat than something like an eBay because while they do create many kinds of original data in terms of metadata and trends and auction capabilities, at the end of the day, they're, they're a layer that just, they're a convenience layer between you and your personal digital property that's inside your crypto wallet secured by the Ethereum blockchain. So OpenSea, very big, very exciting, but also having in some ways fundamentally less power than some of the Web2 marketplaces of the previous generation of technology. Yeah. Ryan, we were talking a little bit off camera on this. I'm, I'm so impressed by your framework for understanding NFTs. We've talked a little bit about the digital art collectibles use case. I know you see this in a much broader and more comprehensive framework about some of the changes that NFTs uh, can bring to end users. Give us a sense when you think about NFTs, where you see the future going and what some of the potential opportunities are in the NFT space outside of the digital collectibles domain. Got it, Ash. So starting from the idea that an NFT is a distinct piece of digital property that has this shipping container standard around it to interoperate with infrastructure that anyone can build, kind of open software infrastructure, we've been able to identify uh, many distinct use cases for NFTs, uh, which have a very diverse, you know, it speaks to a diverse set of stakeholders, diverse set of, of benefits. Uh, and, you know, hopefully, hopefully some of these will, will be surprising to you. You know, they, they certainly were for me. Now I'll preface this by saying that these are by no means an exhaustive list. 
the crypto and Ethereum communities are coming up with new ways to use NFTs every day. And in fact, right now, my group is working on sort of a secret side project that we think is quite cool. And I would I would say it's a distinct line item in this list that I won't disclose today. So uh, very exciting. Lots of growth going on. Uh, here's kind of the high level list. Uh, and then I'll pause there and we can dig into some of each of the line items in the list. So some of the ways we're seeing NFTs being used are uh, art and digital collectibles, including both bespoke art that's been drawn by an artist, by a human artist by hand, as well as machine generated art, generative art. And among those collectibles, we're seeing art that uh, sometimes lives fully on the blockchain and will live forever. And in other cases, the NFT acts as sort of an envelope around art that is stored in a different platform. We're also seeing applications in uh, app stores and algorithms where the NFTs are being used as almost like apps on your phone home screen, where this is your personal collection of crypto apps in your wallet. And that's been the focus of my group right now with with our uh, open ecosystem of app store NFTs, uh, which we call uh, our website is BYOA.org. That's our open ecosystem of of apps uh, where the NFTs are actually applications that you install into your crypto wallet, just like you're going to go to the app store on your phone and put them on your home screen. Well, now we're putting them inside your crypto wallet so they follow you around Web3. And, you know, some folks like to use the term the metaverse. We're also seeing membership clubs where if I own an NFT, yes, my NFT is distinct. It's a personal, it's a piece of personal digital property. However, it's also part of a collection, you know, very much kind of like a, like a fashion spring collection where I have an individual dress. It might even be a unique dress that nobody else has in the world. Yet it's also part of a designer's, you know, you know, spring 2021 collection. And that's what we're seeing as the trend for art and collectibles and membership clubs. So probably the most famous membership club is the uh, Bored Ape Yacht Club. And uh, famous folks such as Steph Curry have actually set their Twitter profile photo to be their Bored Ape NFT uh, because, you know, they think it's a cool, it's a cool, fun membership club. Now, we're also seeing NFTs as financial instruments uh, or, you know, kind of bearer bonds where the NFT represents a bespoke financial position that's been constructed in the Ethereum DeFi decentralized finance ecosystem. So the banner example here is uh, Uniswap version three. So uh, listeners uh, may recall that Uniswap is the uh, Ethereum... DeFi app, which creates an automated market maker, you know, facilitates a a token swap program. And uh, a really big innovation here is that the token swap program runs itself. It doesn't have a back office. There are no humans maintaining it. It's pure software living on the blockchain. It's always correct. It's online 24-7 and anyone can, can back onto it. So you could even have a hedge fund that uses Uniswap on the back end. Now, earlier this year, Uniswap V3, that version three came out, it was a huge upgrade. And as it happens, uh, for technical reasons, they've actually made it now so that when you put your money in Uniswap, when you open that position with your capital, the receipt they give you that represents your ownership of, of that position is an NFT. 
So when you go to OpenSea and, you know, you, for example, go to my wallet and OpenSea, you know, which uh, just a just a quick digression, you know, some wallets are public. They actually have your name on them. And in fact, uh, when you have your name on your wallet, it's a little bit like a domain name. And that domain name itself, that property right of owning that domain name is itself an NFT. So when I have a wallet, my wallet can have digital collectibles and art that are NFTs displayed in my OpenSea collection. It can also have a financial position. So here we see the crypto culture synthesis of art and finance, where in the same page, you can see my property includes crypto art and financial positions. So it's really pretty cool, the flexibility that the NFT idea of a distinct piece of personal digital property in a shipping container brings to, you know, this world of possibilities of, of things people are building. And I'll sort of capstone it here with, with a last high level example, which is that there are now folks using the NFTs themselves as crypto wallets, where they will actually use the NFT as an ownership marker for token airdrops and other kinds of of property rights and entitlements so that the NFT itself can be thought of as a crypto wallet, kind of a wallet inside of a crypto wallet. Pretty cool, Ash. Yeah. So, you know, if I'm a traditional investor and I'm listening to this, I probably just got my mind blown here a little bit by the things that you've just said. I mean, the most striking point for me is just how big this revolution uh, you're talking about sounds. So when you talk about something like, um, you know, a container for art, uh, you know, Steph Curry, as you pointed out, uh, superstar athlete and all around cool guy changing uh, his um, his profile photo to a board ape uh, yacht club membership token on uh, Twitter, I believe, and some of the other uh, platforms. Fascinating point. And then 30 seconds later, you say, oh, and by the way, we're talking about the ability to create uh, effectively bearer bonds. We're talking about the ability uh, for hedge funds uh, to use these as uh, as markers for ownership tokens. It's such a huge revolution that you're discussing. How do you even begin to get your head around something that's that big? That's such a great question. And that's something we hear all the time. And what we find is that after people buy their first NFT, simply having that NFT in their crypto wallet and going through that purchase process encourages them to broaden their horizons and check out the space and feel like they're a member of the crypto club. And... I think that's a great phenomenon. So for those who are considering getting your feet wet in the space, I would recommend dust off your favorite crypto wallet. Uh, I can I can recommend uh, probably the most famous one would be MetaMask, either the browser extension or the mobile wallet, and get that wallet started. Fund it with you know a couple hundred bucks uh, uh, or or whatever amounts right for you. And uh, go to go to OpenSea to start, and there are other websites, you know, dozens and, and soon hundreds. And just take a look around and see what you might like to purchase. And as you're looking at folks' wallets and their collections and the excitement around some of the, the innovation and all the different kinds of threads that are proceeding at a mile a minute in different directions, what we found is that folks who go through this process and put a bit of time against it typically come away with that magic moment where they say, oh, I get NFTs now. When I was a kid, I really cared about baseball cards or or as an adult or pokemon cards or my dvd collection of this series i really like well that's what nfts are but they're on the blockchain 
and they apply to all areas of, of culture and art and, and the economy. Yeah. You know, you said something uh, interesting, putting some time against it. And, you know, I don't want to play devil's advocate here, but let me just talk about what some of the challenges are uh, in this space. So I'm, you know, I'm a MetaMask wallet user myself, uh, and it's a considerable advance on what came before it. Um, but the MetaMask wallet, it's just something, it's, it strikes me as something that's not quite ready yet for prime time from a user experience perspective. I understand that the backend software is very well written. It's very secure, um, but I don't see my mom uh, starting a MetaMask wallet, uh, you know, and, and, and using it to transact with. Where do you think we are from a user experience perspective? I mean, I guess in a certain sense, the flip side of that coin uh, is once some of the UI UX challenges get solved, uh, this is probably something that has a potential more runway to grow. But tell me, where do you think we are from the user experience perspective? Um, this is something that has been something that people who are enthusiasts of the space are incredibly passionate about. Uh, but give us a sense of where you think it is in terms of broader adoption. User experience is the number one thing holding crypto back today. Yeah. The number two thing might be high fees on Ethereum. And the good news is that we are most of the way down a large multi-year effort to improve both of those things. So while MetaMask has a lot of rough edges today and is, I think most people in the community would agree, not the kind of experience you want to send your mom to yet, it has come a long way in the years it's been online. And I believe they've recently announced 10 million monthly active users. And so there are folks who, who are getting their feet wet and successfully getting over that hurdle. But the fact is, wallets are not where they need to be yet. They need to be as easy as Facebook, as easy as Twitter. And it's not there yet. So uh, like, like the popular uh, crypto bankless podcast likes to say, you know, this is the frontier where we're headed west and it's not for everybody. But uh, I do think that where we are this year is substantially better than where we were last year. And we'll continue to see that improvement. And I'll add that yeah, there yeah. are some, oh, pardon me. No, I was just going to say, it's a, it's a great metaphor, the idea of the frontier and headed west. Uh, maybe we're in uh, like, uh, I don't know, Lewis and Clark was like 1805. So maybe we're like in 1830, 1840, 1850. Uh, but the future is one of westward expansion. And now obviously we have this these massive mega cities on the west coast where most of the economic growth and innovation uh, for our country is coming from. So it's such an interesting metaphor, this idea of the frontier expanding uh, into the space. I think so. And to your point, Ash, uh, we might we might liken this to 1830 Lewis and Clark. And uh, another one that we love to kick around is the late 90s in the rise of the Internet. Everyone remembers, you know, if you're, if you're my age, you remember getting the America Online CD-ROM in the mail. You know, they just they just airdrop that stuff to everybody. And, you know, that was something that worked really well for them. And at the time, AOL was a revolution in user experience. You put the CD in the drive, you boot up the program, and quite literally, your mom could do it. It was, it was aimed at your mom. And we're not quite there yet. Crypto isn't quite having its AOL moment yet, but it right. will come. And as it comes, we'll graduate through it and we'll get to a point where we all look back and agree that even crypto's AOL, which hasn't yet come yet, is, you know, relatively rudimentary compared to the, 
you know, the, the gorgeous phones and social networks and finance apps, you know, the, the cash app and the Venmo that, you know, have tens of millions of users that we have today. Yeah. So very excited about that user experience growth and, and very much still kind of, you know, mid to late nineties in internet terms and, you know, 1830s in Lewis and Clark terms. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's a fascinating metaphor as well. And I, I remember that time I was one of the young guys uh, working on Wall Street. Uh, I was working at Credit Suisse uh, in the, I guess, the late 90s. And I, I distinctly remember the, the kind of the feel that you're talking about, the feel that we have today. And the fascinating thing for me uh, is that the technological evangelists were out on the edge there saying the internet is going to change the world. Uh, the skeptics were claiming, no, this is a bubble. The valuations are ridiculous. None of this makes sense. So who was right? Well, the reality was in, in 2000, I guess in April of 2000, we saw the value of the NASDAQ collapse. Uh, we saw uh, the skeptics take a victory lap. But guess what? In the end, here we are uh, you know, having this conversation uh, on streaming video uh, being uh, recorded centrally to the cloud, um, things that were never possible uh, a decade ago that we can now do. So the world did change. And it's so interesting to think about that curve and to think about also the valuations of it. So you're a computer scientist and an investor. With all that said, where do you think we are in valuations? How do you think about it? One of the things that you've talked about that I think is most interesting in the way that you see the world uh, is the idea of uh, cash flow investing uh, versus, um, I'm trying to remember what the term you is. I think it's like uh, like faith investing or uh, the idea that basically yeah. you're, you're confidence-based investing, that you're speculating on the value of a future asset based on where you think it's going to be uh, versus uh, the way that investors uh, talk about, for example, uh, equities, which have cash flow uh, in the form of dividends, uh, or bonds, which have cash flow in the form of coupon payments. How do you think about that matrix today? Today, there are many, there are at least several high-level factors that are kind of influencing this question of where are we in the market cycle? How do we think about valuations and, you know, kind of the pets.com of crypto versus versus the amazon.coms of crypto, as well as kind of this cash flow versus confidence-based uh, uh, dichotomy, these kind of two options that are competing, you know, do we buy something for the cash it's going to produce one day or could produce if they decided to declare a dividend? Or do we buy something because we believe in it and others believe in it and that will support a sustainable long-term valuation? And I think that uh, in a nutshell, everybody's right, or, or all, all of the camps are making very good points. On the one hand, it's absolutely the case that crypto is changing the world already. It will change the world. It is truly web 3.0. Uh, and you know, decades from now, the global economy will backbone onto crypto and it will be as natural to us as the, the internet is today, you know, running the global economy today. And so when we compare that long-term vision of crypto achieving uh, total market cap valuations in the tens of trillions, which, which me and my group think is absolutely coming, uh, and we compare that to some of the, uh, you know, maybe the, the confidence-based valuations today, uh, perhaps, you know, everyone's familiar with the, the prevalence of scams and pump and dumps in crypto. The fact is the technology lends itself to those kinds of things because of its open access nature uh, and its novelty, yeah. you know. And so uh, I, I'm of the view that when the crypto market pumps, everything goes up. When it crashes, everything crashes. But 
you can always rely on the good tokens to go back up later. And so the trick is, what are the good tokens? Now, the only the only token I'm prepared to endorse in our conversation today is Ether. You know, being an Ethereum community member, I very much believe in Ethereum's vision for a level playing field that all the world's corporations and governments can transact on uh, using Ethereum's so-called layer two scaling solutions, uh, which which I'd be happy to get into later in the call. You know, Ryan, talking of which, one of the topics that's incredibly hot now is some of the other layer one platforms out of there being used to potentially deploy smart contracts on. Perhaps the two most famous are Cardano and Solana. What are your thoughts on those as Ethereum alternatives and on the ecosystem more generally? Perfect. Ash, it's going to be a multi-chain world. There won't just be one single blockchain. We believe that what will stabilize at steady state is uh, a sort of oligopoly with uh, uh, an 80-20 distribution where there will be uh, one or two or three layer one independent blockchain networks that have the lion's share of the market uh, as measured in, in many different ways. Uh, could be market cap, could be transaction volume, could be a uh, total amount of assets secured by the platform, could be developers. Whatever way you want to look at these platforms, we believe there's going to be an oligopoly of them and that uh, this small group of you know two or three layer one blockchains will come to dominate 80, 90, even 95% of the market. And then there will be a very long tail of all kinds of different blockchains. Uh, you know, for different purposes, you know, some may be aspiring, have different technology that may be controlled by particular groups. So that's kind of the market structure we see occurring. Now, to speak to the differences between Ethereum, Cardano and Solana, Ethereum's most important advantage is that it's a truly credibly neutral level playing field. And if you dig you know, if one were to put the time against digging into the signals and information coming out of the Ethereum community and the values we espouse as, as an open source and, and open set of, of operators running and maintaining this blockchain, it is very important to us that all governments, all nations, and all corporations, and all people have equal access to the Ethereum blockchain as a uh, global credibly neutral public utility. For people who don't know, can you define credible neutrality? Perfect. So uh, I would absolutely recommend taking a read of uh, Vitalik Buterin, the Ethereum founders, uh, seminal article on credible neutrality. And credible neutrality is the idea that the blockchain is not on anyone's team. It's not on team America. It's not on team US dollar. It's not on team West versus East. It's just a global public utility that anyone can use and anyone can make the most of. And it always does what it, say, what it says it's going to do. And it always maintains everybody's personal property rights, whether you're a farmer in a developing country or even uh, a branch of the U.S. government using Ethereum. And so credible neutrality is the idea that for the first time in the history of the world, we have an independent arbiter that is able to give us a place where we can come together and make economic transactions with perfect trust and perfect accountability. And this has enormous geopolitical implications. Today, if you're a small country and you make an agreement with a much larger country like America, 
How do you know America is going to do what it says it's going to do? If it chooses to change the terms of those agreement, what are you going to do? You're a small country. Your recourses, your, your, your areas and opportunities to level the playing field, to enforce the agreement are really quite limited. You know, take as an example, uh, the Paris Climate Accords. When the U.S. backed out of those accords, they backed out of doing what they said they were going to do. In a future world, it's possible that signatories to the Paris Climate Accords could have put their money where their mouth is by depositing a bond on the Ethereum blockchain. And it would have been possible for the countries to forfeit that bond if they don't live up to their obligations as measured in a decentralized and trustless way. And we do have technologies that can kind of achieve that measurement today. So it it speaks to the promise of credible neutrality to bring about an era of voluntarism and uh, bilateral economic arrangements that exceeds any other period in history where uh, threats of violence threats of threats of not doing what you say you're going to do imbalances of power in terms of one actor uh, being much larger or richer or more powerful or or uh, having a many to one relationship like a monopoly or a monopsony uh, like a single buyer or a single seller the ethereum blockchain as the maximally credibly neutral blockchain speaks to the opportunity to deliver that level playing field for all of humanity. If you right. can pay the fee to use Ethereum, then it plays by the rules. And that's very exciting. And, you know, in my view, we absolutely don't see that level of credible neutrality in Solana or in any other competing blockchain. So I'll, I'll pause there and, and then would love to tell you what I think about Cardano, which is uh, not good. Yeah. And for those who think this sounds like science fiction, uh, the European Investment Bank already issued, I think, a hundred and twenty plus million dollar note uh, on the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, so this is something that's actually occurred, uh, and something that hasn't occurred at scale yet. One hundred and twenty million dollars uh, for the European Investment Bank—not a lot of money compared to the kind of commitments uh, that you'd be talking about for something like the Paris Accords. But we've actually seen this happen uh, today, or I should say, yesterday, as this happened. Uh, what was it in uh, two thousand twenty? Uh, it may have been earlier this year, but uh, yeah, everything's moving so fast that sometimes, you know, a month or two in crypto seems like years. Yeah, it looks like it was in April of 2021 uh, that the European Investment Bank issued that note on the Ethereum blockchain. Let's talk a little bit about Cardano. I know you're skeptical there. What are some of the reasons from a technology perspective uh, that you see Cardano as problematic? From a technology perspective, Cardano uses a blockchain transaction format that's similar to Bitcoin, where one's total assets on Cardano accumulate as so-called unspent outputs from previous transactions. It's sort of like having a collection of receipts lying around in your wallet, where the receipts also kind of specify how much money you have left over. And then when you want to transact with Cardano or Bitcoin, uh, it's incumbent on you to specify which of your bag of receipts you'd like to consume in the process of your new transaction. And while it is possible to build a robust smart contract platform on top of this uh, UTXO unspent transaction output model, you know, this receipt, this bag of receipts model, it it's something that, uh, you know, there, there is a, a very technically strong group working on in the Ethereum space to build a layer two 
uh, an Ethereum layer two scaling solution based on this technology. But for Cardano, the fact is that their current architectural model means that a single smart contract on Cardano can only be interacted with by one user each blockchain block, you know, as that blockchain is kind of built block over block. And so in practical terms, this basically means that the Uniswap of Cardano can only have one person use each asset pool every 20 seconds or so. You know, doesn't exactly scream global ubiquity to be able to use, uh, to be able to uh, only use each Cardano automated market maker pool once every 20 seconds. And furthermore, and I guess, uh, I guess the, the flip side of that is that, and these are obviously very sort of contentious technical debates, uh, is that advocates of UTXO believe it's the most secure mechanism uh, for transacting. They, they may believe that. That's not my area of expertise. I do, I do know that uh, UTXOs are considered to be more efficient in general than Ethereum's account model, where the blockchain maintains, like, Ryan has $5 of US dollar stablecoin. Uh, right. Where Cardano, I think, may have misstepped is that they've taken so long to come to market, and they've taken an academic first approach, not a, a lean startup uh, approach of launching quick and iterating. And because of that academic approach, it was actually the Cardano community itself that flagged this issue just a couple weeks ago, might even been last week, where they said, hey, this is great. Our first smart contract trading system is coming online. And as Cardano enthusiasts, you know, these are people who bought Cardano and who are invested in the community. They went on the website to use this new technology and they were getting these uh, errors. It was saying, oh, sorry, it's it's busy right now. The contract's busy right now. And they went back on Reddit and they said, hey, what's going on with this new technology? You know, looks great, but could you explain this? And essentially the explanation was, this is a fundamental limitation of the current architecture of how Cardano smart contracts work. Now, I wanna take a step back and say that I'm not saying that Cardano can't solve these issues. What I'm saying is that Cardano has been so slow to go to market on the product side and on the iteration side and on the developer outreach side that they're really top heavy in terms of their emphasis on marketing and their emphasis on, frankly, personal opinion, trying to sell Cardano to folks who maybe don't know that much about crypto to begin with. You know, they're kind of new. They can't tell the difference between Cardano and Ethereum and Solana and the others. Well, there is a difference with Cardano. Relative to Ethereum and also Solana, Cardano has almost no developer activity, almost no real traction, and almost no apps that are live today. And these initial financial apps that are coming out of Cardano, uh, have this, you know, fundamental limitation that they themselves created uh, and has been avoided in other serious blockchains. And so the idea that somehow the world's economy is going to grow on top of Cardano, that that idea is intellectually bankrupt, Ash. Whereas when you look at Ethereum, that's a very promising, credible idea, in my view, as well as, you know, Solana, Real, real big spotlight this week. You know, uh, some of Solana's partners have been partnering with Tom Brady, and you know, Ethereum and Solana 
are categorically different than Cardano. We, we think Cardano is essentially vaporware. Yeah, obviously very strong words about Cardano. I'm curious uh, what your thoughts are on the underlying architecture of Solana. We recently had on uh, Anatoly Yakovenko on uh, Real Vision uh, with uh, our friend uh, and fellow Canadian of yours, Eric Kriske, uh conducting the interview, uh, and they got into some of the details about the technology. Uh, what are some of your thoughts about the Solana architecture and why you see it as something that's potentially feasible where you don't see that to be the case with Cardano? Right. So I'll preface this by saying like Solana is fundamentally a great community with a great good faith effort to build a public blockchain that the world's economy and video games and applications could run on top of. The technical trade-offs that they've articulated in their designs are highly credible and novel, built by world experts like Anatoly. Uh, and so, uh, in my view, they are just killing it. That being said, Solana has created a strategy for themselves at the technology level, as well as at the business development level, that is inherently more centralized and less credibly neutral than Ethereum. Solana validator nodes and I don't want to misrepresent my level of expertise here. You know, Anatoly created the system and there are, you know, dozens and hundreds of folks who understand Solana at a much deeper level than I do. But a, a Solana validator is an industrial machine that you have to put effectively in a data center if you don't have a better internet connection than 99.999% of Americans at home. And it it's a computer that costs several thousand dollars to create. It has a graphics card in it, the kind of graphics card you use to run like, like Call of Duty on your PC. And it, and it processes transactions at a rate that just vastly exceeds Ethereum's capacity today. And as the real blockchain technical experts dig into the trade-offs that achieve that scalability, you know, what they've really found is that Solana is a system that will we believe will always fundamentally have uh, a smaller set of blockchain validators require uh, large high performance computers that have to run in data centers that don't have the option in general of being run in the home by by average folks and of course i'm not saying that ethereum's proof of stake validator network is going to substantially be run in the home what i'm saying is that the fact that it could be run in the home, that it kind of has the threat of being moved into everybody's homes is part of Ethereum's fundamental maximization or maximization of credible neutrality. So on, on Solana's architecture side, they have these, these big honking nodes that are so big and spin so fast that even a lot of Solana's info sites and Solana's uh, user interfaces that serve retail users are actually having trouble keeping up with the latest state of the of, of the Solana blockchain, because you have the Solana chain that's running a mile a minute, you know, orders of magnitude faster than Ethereum, and it it creates a situation where it's not clear that those speed increases are worth the trade-offs in long-term property rights, especially through the lens of serious financial institutions and most especially from the point of view of government. 
If you're a government and you want to issue $10 trillion of sovereign bonds on a blockchain, or you want to create uh, a digital, like a true central bank digital currency that is legal tender in your country, you need to really think long and hard before you're going to go and put that on Solana. Because Ethereum's property rights are the gold standard. And while today Ethereum's scalability at the base layer, you know, will not deliver the scalability of Solana, pardon me, will never deliver the scalability of Solana. The fact is, if you if you dig under the hood a bit, Ethereum has a thriving ecosystem of layer two solutions, including some solutions that are based on state-of-the-art mathematics known as zero-knowledge proofs. Uh, you know, companies like Starkware that, that my group is working with to scale our application, uh, these are these are companies that are going to help bring Ethereum to global ubiquity. And we think that when you compare Solana's relatively centralized technology and relatively centralized business development activities, and and you look at the benefit of their scalability, and you compare that package of benefits with the alternative of the Ethereum base layer blockchain that is the most incredibly neutral and level playing field in the history of the world with the strongest long-term property rights and Ethereum being complemented by these web of layer twos with their, you know, emerging scaling technologies that are going to work really, really well and, and also deliver Ethereum strength property rights inside these layer twos. We just think that, you know, if you're a video game developer or, you know, you're a hedge fund playing with a relatively small amount of money, you know, a hundred million, great. Get on Solana, have fun, enjoy your free transactions. You know, they're a great ecosystem with a great community. But if you're a corporation looking to build a stable decade over decade economic backbone for your company, or you're a country looking to create a, a new central bank digital currency that's going to be legal tender in your country for the next century, we think you'd be crazy to choose Solana versus Ethereum. Thanks, Ash. We should probably say, you mentioned Starkware. You actually did an interview on Real Vision with Uri Kaladny and Eli Ben Sassoon uh, here talking about the Starkware protocol. Uh, so for people who are interested in that, it's available on Real Vision if you'd like to watch. I know we've run over time here uh, and we haven't gotten to uh, Ethereum scaling solutions, uh, L2s. We haven't talked about uh, Ethereum 2.0. We haven't talked about the hard pork EIP 1559. All of these things, I think we should do another episode. Just do a part two if you have time. That'd be great, Ash. Fantastic. So to close this episode out, uh, talking about NFTs, talking about the community, talking about where you see the current state of Ethereum investment, what are your final thoughts? What would you like to leave our viewers with for this episode? NFTs as personal digital property and also fungible tokens, your, your ethers, your BTCs, and crypto as a level playing field, as a global public utility for humanity to come together and create new kinds of culture and economic arrangements, especially on Ethereum. These are here to stay. This trend's not going away. It's not gonna falter. It's not a bubble. The underlying trends are the real deal. As for the speculation and investment aspect, that's harder to say, but if I had one piece of non-investment advice, it would be that applications come and go, but base layers are mostly here to stay because it takes years of work, hundreds of millions of dollars, and hundreds of partnerships to get a good, credibly neutral public chain stood up and operational. So if you're just getting into crypto, you know, walk before you run. 
Don't just go and jump into the latest app token before you do your own research. I would recommend starting with the layer ones, look at the set of blockchains and you know just make sure that you're not letting this trend of public blockchains as a new backbone for the global economy pass you by. Ryan, always a pleasure when you join us. Uh, stay tuned soon for part two, talking about Ethereum and scaling solutions. Thanks for watching, everybody. Thanks for having me on the show, Ash. Welcome to the end of the video. We know that on average, 85% of you who start a video on Real Vision finish it. That's extraordinary. On Facebook, it would just be 4%. And that's because Real Vision creates the most engaging content in the entire media world. Let us help you grow your business by making video content that really engages your customers. Email us at customvideo at realvision.com.